All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. I hope that you are a daily Bible reader. There are many methods for a person reading the Bible on a daily basis, and it may be that for you, you need some guidance and direction. If you do, on the table in the foyer are the calendars for 2014, and there are daily Bible readings for each and every day. I know some of you took the calendars last year, and you're reading along with them. Several weeks ago, I was reading in my daily Bible reading from the book of Esther. And as I came across that chapter 3, it made an impression upon me that we really need to be the kind of people who deal with our anger and our jealousy. And so this morning, what I would like to focus your attention for just a few moments is to the subject of our overcoming anger and jealousy. To begin with, I'd like to introduce the subject with some thoughts in mind. A few years ago, a couple of our members came to me and said, a new man has moved into our community. He was a religious man. He wanted to be addressed by a religious title. Both of these good brethren here refused to do so. They called him Mr. So-and-so. And his reply to both of them was, I have earned this title. You need to call me by that. You know, when you go to the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 23, beginning with verse 6, Jesus said they love the best places at the feast, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I thought about how what we will study in just a few moments applies to this so much. There are those who, when they do not get the respect that they believe is due to them or what they have done, will become angry. If you'll remember, Cain and Abel were instructed by God to offer sacrifices. And when they did, God, according to Genesis chapter 4, verse 4, that Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of its fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. You see, he became angry because God did not respect what he did. He did not respect Cain. We have to realize that sometimes 
we allow ourselves to become angry. And in fact, I want to ask, do you struggle with anger and jealousy and you've got to respect me for who I am and what I am and what I do? Well, I believe there are some great Bible passages which will help us see ourselves properly, to focus our attention on who we are and what we are as we stand before God. So this morning we're going to look at two very brief things. They are, number one, powerful examples. Number two, the principles examined within them. Let's begin. I'm only going to use three passages of Scripture with regards to these powerful examples. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles now to the book of Esther. We're going to begin in this section, and it's valuable for us to see the characters involved and to see the characteristics of these people. We're going to talk about Haman and Mordecai. The first thing that I observe when you look at the people themselves is their names. Haman means magnificent, even of the name himself, someone destined to be great. Mordecai means little man. I don't know why Mordecai's parents gave him that name. It may be that he looked like a little man there as he was born. It may be that he was just a little fellow, and they used the word little to apply to him. But their names indicate a lot about the way they saw themselves. And I think it's valuable to, if you study a passage of Scripture and you're reading along, to realize there's some background that may be able to help you. And there's some historical animosity between Haman's people and Mordecai's people. If you go back to chapter uh, 1 Samuel and chapter 15, you'll go to verse 8. You'll remember about old King Agag. We read there from Samuel's account, he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed the people with the edge of the sword. Haman was an Agagite. That means he was a descendant of Agag. He was likely of the family of the Amalekites. On the other hand, Mordecai was described as a descendant of of Kish. And according to Esther chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, it says that he was a Jew named Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. If you'll remember, Saul was the son of Kish. So if you look at the big picture, you have Saul's family and the Amalekites in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And now you come to Esther and there's a historical animosity between these people here. But I want you to contrast the two men that you look at. Let's first look at Haman. Haman was a man who was vain and arrogant. He thought himself to be someone great. He had been elevated in the rule of Ahasuerus as being one of the chief officers he would have been like, we would say, the Secretary of State or the Secretary of Defense, a high officer, well respected by his king. Listen to chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 again. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow 
or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout all the kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. You see, he's a man who wants everybody to bow down at his feet. He is demanding, you're going to respect me. You will respect the position that I have. As you go a little bit further to chapter 5, beginning with verse 9, Haman was proud of himself. And uh, he did not know how to deal with Mordecai. But he wanted his wife and his family to know how much he had been elevated in the kingdom. Listen to this. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. I want you to imagine that session there. He's called in his family, he's called in his friends, and he says, let me tell you how wealthy I am. How would you like to sit through that? I want you to understand the high level that I have been given. He must have bragged on and on and on. Moreover, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited me, or invited no one but me, to come in with the king to the banquet she prepared. And tomorrow I am invited, again invited by her, along with the king. Now listen to verse 13. Yet all of this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Here's a man who has just about everything. He is so well blessed, but he can't enjoy it because of his anger and because of his jealousy. If you go to chapter 6 and you look at verses 6 through 9, you find another interesting section. He's been called in before the king. He doesn't know that the king is wanting to honor Mordecai. And so the king's going to ask him a question. Verse 6. What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn and a horse on which the king is ridden, and which has the royal crest on its head. I want to stop before I go forward to the next slide, which has the rest of this passage. Notice the question and then the thoughts at the end of verse 6. 
Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? His view of himself is, I am the greatest servant of my king, and it ought to be me who's going to get this honor, and so I am going to lay it on thick. Where are the king's clothes? Ride the king's horse. And then he says, Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor and parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. He was so vain that he thought it was all about him. But you see, one thing that you learn about him is is that not only did he want to destroy Mordecai, He had developed such an anger, such a jealousy, such a hatred that he hated all the Jews and wanted them killed. And he prepared a way to do that. In chapter 5, verse 14, Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made. Fifty cubits high in the morning suggest to the king Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman So he had the gallows made. Oh man, I can just visualize that. Do you know how high 50 cubits would be? 75 feet from the floor to the apex of this ceiling is 23 feet. I want you to imagine the gallows are three times the height of this building. He wants to make a statement My anger is so much, I am willing to take his life and do so in such a a very prominent way. But I want you to contrast that with Mordecai. He is a righteous man. He's a religious man. When you get to chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, you will read about Mordecai and how he served the king. See, he's a Jew. He's from Jerusalem, or he is from Judah. Benjamin. He is from the southern kingdom. He's not a Mede or a Persian. But yet, he reported a coup or an attempt to kill the king. Notice, in those days while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, Doorkeepers became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther. And Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when inquiry was made to the matter, it was confirmed, and both of them were hanged on a gallows. And it was written in the chronicles in the presence of the king. You have to see, here's a man who says, there's going to be a murder take place. I'm going to prevent it. A good man. When you get to chapter 4, he knows there has been a proclamation made about the Jews to kill them all. He goes to Queen Esther and he explains to her she has a role to try to prevent this. And here's the way he puts it to her. Verse, middle part of verse 13. Do not think in your heart 
that you will escape in the king's palace any more than the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai stood up and did the right thing. What's he asking Esther to do? You stand up. You do the right thing. What you see when you read this section of the book of Esther is that the honor that Haman wanted for himself was bestowed upon Mordecai. And what you see is the punishment that Haman intended to inflict upon Mordecai was inflicted upon himself. Look at chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Now Harbana, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the king's wrath was subsided. Folks, let me tell you, there's a moral, there's a lesson in that. And the moral is simply this. He who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's look at number two example. If you will, turn with me to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3. And while you're turning to the book of Daniel, we're going to talk about Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and we're going to talk about three of the Hebrew young men serving in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. There's no doubt about the pompous character of Nebuchadnezzar. You can read in chapter 4, verses 28 through 30. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. And the king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I built for the royal dwelling by my power and for the honors of my majesty? He said, I am the leader of the free world, but just not the free world. It wasn't free. I'm the leader of the world. I am the conqueror of the world. Nebuchadnezzar said, it's all about me. Of course, God taught him a lesson. You drop down to verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the honor of the king of heaven and all whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. He said, I know firsthand how God can humble you. But when you go back to chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar had made this great image. It's very possible that this image was of himself. In fact, if you go to chapter 3, verse 1, you will see that it is 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. 
And what he expected is that everyone fall down before that great image and worship it. It's made out of gold. You've got to fall before that image and worship it. Listen to verse 5 of Daniel 3. That at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, harp, lyre, psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. You say, that's the rule. That's what everybody's supposed to do. But if you will see verses 8, 12, the latter part of verse 15, verses 17 18, these three Hebrew young men said, we're not going to do that. We refuse. Just like Mordecai would not bow at the feet of Haman, these young men won't bow at the feet of this gold image either. Listen. Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. Verse 12, Then certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Drop down to the latter part of verse 15. If you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? I think you get the picture. They wouldn't bow down and they were threatened. If you do not worship this image, you will be thrown into that great furnace. Look at verses 17 and 18. Look at the kind of honor, the kind of resolve that these young men had. They said, if it be the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And if he will not deliver us from your hand, O king, but if not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Now you can imagine how Nebuchadnezzar responded to that. In fact, he became furious. The anger that he had was so strong. Here's the way we learn that he responded. Verse 19, he was full of fury, and the expression of his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he spoke and commanded they should heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. That's going to be hot. How bad was the heat? Look at verse 22. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent, the furnace was exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You see, even the men who threw them in died because it was so hot. But you know, they survived. Third example. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 18. This will be a rather quick one, but I thought it was worthy of being used. You see King Saul and David as a young man. And when you get to verses 6 through 8, you will see David's success really distressed Saul. I think it's interesting the way Samuel records it. Listen. He says, Now as it happened, as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, 
that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy and musical instruments. If you stop right there, you'd say, oh, Saul was just thrilled with everything. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me they've only ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Do you see the anger on Saul's face? He feels he's being disrespected because David is being ascribed ten thousands. See, the truth is, anger always reacts. What did it do with Haman? It made him build a gallows and wanted to kill Mordecai. Actually, also caused him to try to have all the Jews killed. Number two, when you look at Nebuchadnezzar, what did he do? He had the fiery furnace prepared. Now, you've got Saul here. What's he going to do? His jealousy and his hatred is going to try to cause him to hurt David, kill him. 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 11. And Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Wow. See what anger does to people? David had the opportunity to take Saul's life. But he did not do so. In chapter 24, verses 4 through 7, they're in the cave, and Saul is in there. David, it says in the latter part of verse 4, arose and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward, David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to the men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. You see, there's some people able to control themselves. Others are not. Now with those three examples in mind, with just a few minutes, I just want to sort of summarize, if you will, some of the principles that are involved here. First of all, if we're going to learn to overcome our anger, we have got to learn and understand the source of our anger. Why or what makes us mad? What makes us angry? Do you have the right to be angry? That's something that needs to be thought about. You remember going back to Genesis 4 verse 6, God's question to Cain? It says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? What he's trying to force Cain to do is to think, Cain, do you really have a right to be angry? What is the source of your anger? Obviously, it was a jealousy of his brother. Obviously, he thought he should be respected more for what he did. The phrase, he who angers you controls you, is true. 
Haman was controlled by his anger of Mordecai. Nebuchadnezzar was controlled by his anger of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Saul was controlled by his anger of David. Even though none of the three deserved that anger. Number two, we must evaluate our spiritual state while we're angry. In other words, when you start thinking about that, do I have a righteous indignation or am I just plain old angry? Is there a place for righteous indignation? Well, most certainly. One of the best passages I can think of is found in Psalm 139, verses 19 through 24. David is surrounded by wicked men who are seeking his hurt. And here's what he says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. For they speak against you wickedly. That is, against God wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe them who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Now listen to verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, look at my heart. Folks, sometimes when we are surrounded by people who hate us, who are jealous of us, and who want to do us harm, it might be easy for us to want to say, well, I've got a good right to be angry and to hate. But David says, search my heart. Is it a righteous or a selfish anger? In Psalms 4, verse 4, David writes, Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. The quotation of part of that in the New Testament, in Ephesians 4, 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. We need to be the kind of people who do not sin in anger. When we allow ourselves to get out of control, that's when we have problems. Brother Dale this morning read from James 1, verses 19 and 20. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness, rank, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. The third part of that is we have to seek a solution for our anger. And when we do, in preparing this, I was going through some of my old notes and I found one that I thought was really, really good. Several years ago at a lectureship, I heard Brother James Meadows speak on anger. And I wrote down the seven things that he said, which I thought were very appropriate. Of course, you could have made a whole lesson out of these themselves. Seven suggestions of how to deal with anger. I'm going to go through them real quick. Drop it. 
Proverbs 17 and verse 14. The beginning of strife is like the releasing of water. Therefore, stop contention before it starts. If you've got a problem, just drop it. Don't keep pushing it. That'll deal with anger a lot. Number two, hold it. I know you're told today by people, what you need to do is just get it all out. Just get it all out. That's what, that'll make you feel so much better. Well, Proverbs 29, 11 says, A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. There's time for you to hold your tongue and to hold your anger. Number three, cool it. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a grievous or a harsh word stirs up anger. You know, you get out there and you put some hot words back, I can tell you what's going to happen. It's just going to get hotter. So you cool it. Number four, you get from it. Get away from it. Proverbs 22, verse 24, Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man do not go lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. Next is listen. I just read James 1.19. He said, Let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak. Rather than trying to think about what we're going to say next and saying it, think a little bit before you say something. And that's where you get to the next one. Think. Proverbs 15, 28. The heart of the righteous studies how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. And then speak the truth in love. In Ephesians 4, verse 15, Paul writes, but speaking the truth in love. Folks, we've got to express righteous indignation at times. But we've always got to do so with a loving tone and loving words. I want to tell you, as I read through the book of Esther and thought about the things that became this lesson, I realized it's easy to become a victim. And in reality, that's what Haman did. He saw himself as a victim of the lack of respect of Mordecai. It's easy for us to become angry people if we're always looking at ourselves as everybody is mistreating me. And folks, that's where we have some real problems and we think we're justified in our anger. But rarely does one serve God when he allows his anger to rage. I'm usually not serving God when I'm doing that. I'm serving myself. And finally, one of the greatest problems we need we have is we don't learn to let God resolve so many of the difficulties of this life. I want to end with Romans chapter 12, 17 through 21. Repay to no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, Live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. 
For in so doing you will heap coals of fire upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, we want to be those who overcome problems in our lives because we let the Bible be our guide and how to live in everything we say and everything we do. This morning, if you are not a Christian, we want to urge you to make the choice and the decision in your life that will lead you to heaven. That's where we're all seeking to go. And if you have sin in your life and you need to repent of it as a Christian, then we want to encourage you to do that this morning as well. If you're a Christian, you can come and we'll pray with you that your sins will be forgiven. If you're not a Christian, you can come and we'll let you confess your faith in Christ and be baptized. If you need to respond, will you come as we stand and sing?